Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Last week we practiced together in a five-day retreat, and some of you were there, and uh, as always, the intensives are intense. And uh, one thing that sometimes happens in intensives is I get to meet with students, and I love when that happens. But of course, because there's only one Michael, I can never meet everybody, but I try. And so I wanted to talk tonight and also next week about some of the themes that I've been noticing in meeting with people. And so the two themes that I've talked, I'm going to talk about tonight are impermanence and loneliness. Um, when I say impermanence, I'm not talking about philosophically knowing that everything is changing but I'm talking about what it feels like when you feel the transience of your life and of all things. And when I'm talking about loneliness, I'm not talking about statistics, but I'm talking about how we work with loneliness. So when I speak, it's really good that you don't just use your mind to hear the talk. Because all day we're using our minds so analytically. Does anybody feel tired? So it's a good practice when I'm speaking. Uh, sometimes you may have an idea pop up or something, but just when I'm speaking, just to inhale the talk. And then exhale, let go of it. And if there's something in there that should stick, it'll, it'll snag you if needed. So... If you want to really study loneliness, you can uh, study sociologists. They have so many smart things to say. And economists also say really important things about loneliness. But for me, I'm speaking tonight as someone who teaches contemplative practice, who meets with lots of people, and I'm speaking more at the level of uh, your heart, I hope, even though all those other perspectives are very important. Uh, so first, let's begin with the topic of loneliness, and I'm going to start with a poem by a wonderful poet named Robert Creeley. I didn't know Robert Creeley's poems that well until I got to know Peter Levitt, and he was a big, uh, he was a close friend of Peter Levitt's. And as many of you know, Robert Creeley is a really important American poet, and he died in 2005, 
And apparently, uh, when he published his last book, he forgot to put this poem in it. Literally, he just forgot. So this poem didn't make it. And then it got sent around after his death. So there's a backstory to this poem. It's called When I Think. That would be a good part. That would be a good exercise. It's just, I give you the title of a poem, When I Think, and you write a poem. (laughs) (laughs) When I think of where I've come from, or even try to measure as any kind of distance these places, all the various people and all the ways in which I remember them, so that even the skin I touched or was myself fact of inside could see through like a hole in the wall or listen to, it must have been to what was going on in there, even if I was still too dumb to know anything. When I think of the miles and miles of roads or meals, of telephone wires even, or even of water poured out in endless streams down streaks of black sky or the dirt roads washed clean or myriad salty tears and suddenly it's spring again, or it was. Even when I think about all those I treated so poorly, names, places, they're waiting uselessly for me in the rain, and I never came, was never really there at all, was moving so confusedly, so fast, so driven, like a car along some empty highway, passing, passing, passing other cars. When I try to think of things, of what's happened, of what a life is and was, my life, when I wonder what it meant, the sad days passing, the continuing echoing deaths, all the painful belligerent news, and the dog still waiting to be fed, the closeness of you sleeping, voices, presences of children, of our own grown children, the shining bright sun, the smell of the air just now, each physical moment passing, passing. It's what it always is or ever was, just then, just there. Just then, just there. It's like when you blink. It's just then, it's just there. The present moment arises and it always passes away before it's even complete. And what is the present moment anyways? It's a bit of a silly term, isn't it? I mean, I know it's a good way to sell books. But the present moment is not there either. So everything is changing. And it's not just out there. It's between us. It's in us. It is us. Impermanent. 
we can't even find ourselves. Because whatever we look at, it's dark. You can't see it. There's an exercise we did in the intensive last week. where Let's try it together. You take your finger, point it at your ear, point it at your forehead, your knee, and just keep pointing around until you're pointing at you. And you'll notice it's strange. It's like there's this one spot where it really feels like you're pointing at yourself. Really try this. It's really weird. And you can just take your finger a little further. And you'll notice like if you point a bit to the ear, it doesn't feel like it's pointing at you. But if you go really slowly, sort of this spot where it's pointing at you. And it's the strangest thing because that means, if you look at my body, that means that my, this is not me. <laughs> right? That somehow what's pointing isn't me. I, I see this a lot in yoga poses. Like sometimes when people say, take your legs out in front of you. Without even thinking what a strange concept that is. <laughs> that you're back here and you take your legs or arms out in front of you. Put your arms behind you. <laughs> are your arms still you when they're behind you <laughs> so our imagination is so creative and in this uh, experience of the, the changing nature of reality somehow it creates this locus this sense of me which is so fascinating so the idea in Dharma practice is that the more we open to impermanence, the more and more we find stability. So the more we open into impermanence, the more we see not only the impermanent nature of reality, but the impermanent nature of the self, the constructed nature of the self. And paradoxically, as we open to impermanence, we find more and more stability. And this is a really important point. That the deeper our insight is into impermanence, the more we feel a sense of stability. They go hand in hand. And we really need stability in our practice. I'm reflecting a lot on the history of our community because it's changing. And... Ten years ago, when I started Center of Gravity, I said to myself, okay, I'm just going to do my practice, and I'm going to do it with other people, uh, and uh, we'll perform this practice together. And it'll be every week, and whatever's happening in my practice, I will roll it into my... Whatever's happening in my life, I will roll it into my practice, and then so uh, I will be able to show up. And then other people will show up. And we'll all learn how to show up together. Kind of a simple idea. And I thought the only thing that really I will be able to offer is stability. Because I think if there's stability in practice, then uh, whatever shows up has a container. So... 
all kinds of things have shown up over the years. Uh, I keep joking that it's like the great thing about our community is that we haven't had a scandal. So maybe we should like have a scandal just because it's the thing we haven't had. If anybody has an idea, let me know. <laughs> and some themes that come up a lot for people are uh, impermanence and also loneliness. And somehow, the more I hear it, the more I think those two things are connected. Everything's changing because it's alive. So you're always in company. Always in company. But our thoughts sometimes can be so deluding. They have such a powerful influence in our lives. Our thinking does. How we conceptualize how we're experiencing something. And modern solitude is a puzzling thing. We're more connected than ever. You can get anything you want from wherever you want right now. We live in a big city. If you want an olive from any continent, you could have it within an hour. Or I bet you you could have it within 15 minutes. An olive from anywhere you choose. You can have any kind of spiritual practice you want. Pick one, you can have it. Any kink you want, you can get it. I was reading in The New Yorker uh, an article about loneliness. And to sum up this article, it was basically saying that aloneness is on its way in the more we're connected. In 1950, four, they're referring to the United States, obviously. In 1950, four million people in this country lived alone. Four million. These days, there are almost eight times as many, 31 million. Americans are getting married later than ever. The average age of the first marriage for men is 28. And bailing on domestic life, which basically means half of modern marriages are expected to end in divorce. We all know this. Today, more than 50% of U.S. residents are single. Nearly a third of all households have just one resident. And 5 million adults younger than 35 live alone. That's incredible. Five million adults younger than 35 live alone. I'll add to that that uh, two weeks ago when I was presenting, some of you were there with Willoughby Britton, a neuroscientist from Brown University. She showed this incredible study where they did brain imaging on some rural Chinese people in, this, was, this was a site done in China where they showed them images of another person in their community 
and then images of their mother. Then they did this with some people in Tibet, and then they did this with Americans. And what they showed was that the part of the brain that turns on, that recognize, that, that, that generates self-reference in the Chinese population didn't turn on when it w- they were shown another person. The part of the brain that creates self-reference when a Tibetan person was shown an image of their mother didn't turn on. Isn't that fascinating? But they didn't know that until they showed pictures of other people and of their mother to Americans and watched the part of the brain that creates the story of me turn on. It's an interesting thing and has huge ramifications, which I'm not going to get into tonight because tonight I'm sort of focusing on the loneliness aspect. But it has huge ramifications for how we understand as North Americans the teachings of non-self. Because what it's showing scientifically is that in some other cultures, more related to the cultures that these teachings came out of, no self was something that would be a teaching that would create a sense of relaxation. Where here, it's much more problematic. In fact, in the, in the DSM, the psychiatric manual, under depersonalization, uh, some of you know this, this term depersonalization, the kind of loss of identity, loss of a sense of self, uh, there, it says within that category that if it happens for religious purposes, it's not considered um, abnormal. <laughs> we all long for a union with something, something sacred. But in a way, part of this practice is to turn that upside down. So that it's not that we're trying to It's not that we're longing for union, but we need to have union with longing. We need a better relationship with our experience of wanting and of longing. How we can be with others and also how we can be alone. One of my favorite practices is retreat. We can feel our aloneness when we're on retreat. And then also after some days in the silence, when our own personal habits are not so important, we start to feel a deeper sense of connection with other people. And nobody's talking. It's an amazing process. To be in this steady rhythm with other people and to feel the connection with other people that has nothing to do with words. I think that most of the part of loneliness that makes us suffer is our received ideas, our internalized ideas from our culture about what it means to be together and what it means to be alone. If you live alone, 
and you're one of those statistics from the New Yorker, and you haven't made a kid by the age of 40, you're told that fate has been unkind to you. Has anybody heard this before? We don't talk much about this. If you study your misery around loneliness, you'll see that there are so many cultural ideas mixed up in your ideas about yourself and what's important. It's not so much that you're feeling lonely most of the time. It's the thought of being lonely that tends to bother us the most. And images of us being lonely and sad and eating cat food have no end. Once they take over, they can make us feel so sad. We hear a lot about samsara and a lot about nirvana, but we don't hear enough about how to get unstuck when we're feeling lonely. Which, judging by these statistics, is everyone in this room. The poet William Carlos Williams has an incredible poem uh, about loneliness. Uh, I'll just read you the first section. Thought is false happiness. The idea that merely by thinking one can or may penetrate, not may, but can, that one is sure to be able, that there lies at the end of thought a foyer of the spirit in a landscape of the mind in which we sit and wear humanity's bleak crown. That's a great definition of loneliness, isn't it? Wearing humanity's bleak crown. Can you picture that? That bleak crown of thinking and overthinking. So my interest is in how we can cultivate a relationship with loneliness that's not threatening. Because most of the time we're threatened by loneliness or we threaten loneliness. Like, oh, I'm going to fill you up. (laughs) Uh, Pema Chodron says that there are six ways to work with loneliness. And maybe this is the best thing about Pima Chodron is she's so good at these kind of lists that it's such an American thing is to say, okay, and now here's what you can do about it. When I, when I teach in Europe, I always notice that when I uh, give talks, uh, a lot of times there's a uh, few questions about, well, what, what can I do with this? And when I'm teaching in North America, that's always the first question that goes up. Well, what do we do with this? (laughs) Uh, Here are the six ways of working with loneliness. Uh, One, less desire, which I would translate as craving. Number two, contentment, practicing contentment. 
Number three, avoiding unnecessary activity. Complete discipline. Not wandering in the world of desire. And lastly, not seeking security from one's discursive thoughts or in one's discursive thoughts. So this first one is interesting. Less desire. So when loneliness arises... How can you welcome in the loneliness and really watch the craving mind start? I don't want to be in this. Or all the ways that you can solve the loneliness. A really good practice for working with this is the practice of labeling. So when you're sitting... Some of you do labeling practice. You know, you notice thinking, just say thinking. Or thinking past, thinking future. So when loneliness comes up, just catch it. Loneliness. And then you can see right in the tail, craving. And there's so many kinds of craving. There's craving for existence and also craving for non-existence. Sometimes in the bleakness of loneliness, what we crave most is just to not exist at all. And then we see that all those fantasies of not existing, and that can start on like a vacation that you're never coming back from, to suicide. And in that whole spectrum of, and and in that spectrum is also, I would say, nirvana. The fantasy of, oh, well, there must be some spiritual experience I have, and this is always, I think, the misunderstanding of nirvana, is it's better than this. I often tell students in meditation practice, when you sit and you open up to wanting, the first kind of wanting you should notice is wanting peace. I mean, that really is an obstacle to meditation practice sometimes. Is just wanting things to be different than they are. So I think when loneliness arises, we have to quickly catch the part of us that doesn't want to exist. I don't know why, when our thinking starts running into habits, it gets so negative. And it's not just at 3 o'clock in the morning. It can also just be during the day. Just a kind of negative slant to our thinking. And if you combine that with loneliness, and then add to that craving, and then add to that these internalized, internalized ideas about how you're supposed to be living, wherever those came from, you have a recipe for deep inadequacy, deep lack. Not being here in what's arising. And the great thing about practice is we can learn not to take this so seriously. It's all true, but it's not about you. I also uh, really like this last uh, one of her six. Do you want me to read those six again? Has everyone memorized them? 
less desire, contentment, avoiding unnecessary activity. Do you know what I'm talking about? Facebook. Facebook? <laughs> Looking at other people's Facebook pages. <laughs> Complete discipline, not wandering in the world of desire. And the last one, not seeking security in your discursive thinking. In other words, being able to drop drop into something that's not your discursive thinking. Yes? What would be the difference between um, avoiding unnecessary action and then not floating in the realm of desire? I don't know. Uh, one, one thing that comes to my mind is uh, not going to the mall. So there's the desire that comes internally, and also there's the floating around where there's the desires that are manufactured that are uh, seducing us all the time. Maybe when we're feeling lonely, the mall is not the best place to go. And you can interpret mall in many, many different ways. Nowadays, the mall can just be getting online. The most important thing is just recognizing your thinking for what it is. A famous uh, Zen saying that some of you have probably heard or you've received a postcard with this printed on it. Before a person studies Zen, mountains are mountains and waters are waters. After a first glimpse into the truth of practice, mountains are no longer mountains and waters are not waters. After awakening, mountains are once again mountains, and waters once again waters. When you first start practicing, it's just loneliness. It comes and it hits you, so you go shopping. And then, when you get a little more intimate with the loneliness, you see that that loneliness is also this jam-packed little ball that you can undo and look at with your whole heart and be in with your whole heart. And loneliness is not loneliness. It's sensations. It's all these internalized stories. It's deep feeling that you don't need to jump out of. And then, when you have deep insight into that, when you wake up, you still get lonely. <laughs> but it doesn't have the power over you anymore. There's still mountains there. Still waters there. But it just doesn't have the power over you. And that's why we need some discipline in our practice. So we can go through these phases. Not rigid, but discipline, commitment, stability. And then even in loneliness, there can be a vast freedom. So I wanted to read from you, uh, I wanted to read 
uh, a little bit. Uh, uh, with, with the help of my friend Aaron, I'm going through old journals of mine and uh, uh, I don't know what I'm doing, but I found old writing of mine, so I'm going to read you some. This was written at the loneliest time of my life. That's why I'm reading it. So if you're not depressed yet. (laughs) Uh, You can just close your eyes and imagine this. I think I was like 20 years old or something, 21. Because the snow has fallen for nine days in a row, the forest floor and the lake are inseparable. This is what it looked like before cities. Oh, I'm sorry, I should have said the... I'm in Algonquin Park. I'm in a Volkswagen van. And it's March. This is what it looked like before cities. When it snows for this long and you sleep in the day so as not to freeze and stay up all night, the silence of the province is turned up. Birds on the eastern trees about a mile to the left are audible now. The flat light of the white lake has a tinge of sulfur yellow. On average, I count 40 birds a day. This, this became my practice at that time. I would just count how many birds there were every day. It's 1994. I'm at the end of a paved road near Rock Lake in Algonquin Park, four and a half hours from Toronto. I moved into this van to live for a long time. I have no idea how long I will stay here. I write in a line notebook on a tiny laminate kitchen table. The snow is soft. Everything means something. The first days of not sleeping were shaky and I couldn't write. I paid the tow truck driver in town to bring me food. His stomach spills out from under his wool coat. I have Jung's entire collected works, all 19 books, and a new set of oil paint. Last night I woke in the middle of the day. This was because I slept. I was scared that I would freeze at nighttime. So I, I slept in the day, and then I stayed up all night. Um, last night I awoke in the middle of the day to the sounds of the plow high up on the road about two miles south and an hour later I woke again to the smooth sounds of more snow. I pay attention to the directions. I sleep with my head against the back window of the van. When I wake up, I like looking at the sky to the north. That's where all the weather comes from. I melt snow for water. My beard is long. I'm having dreams of birds. Behind the clouds, more clouds. I haven't seen the sun in a week. I'm getting better. In January, I wasn't sleeping. I was writing down my dreams and realized I could write down my dreams without sleeping, just by trying to keep up with my mind. I'm writing down as much as I can, but I can only write about what I see, not what I feel. The images inside are too many to write down. 
I could sit still well into the night more easily than in the day. So this is, I'm writing, I'm writing about January. At night, my mind could get so slow I could watch sentences break apart and see how thoughts came on my inhale. The rest of the exhalation was silent. At the end of the exhale, it was like I was looking around waiting to see what new thoughts came. My body felt really quiet and sometimes my legs turned into the carpet or the carpet turned into legs or the breath would flow down my legs and into the carpet. I never got dizzy and I never got hungry. I could hold my breath at the end of the exhale for a minute. It started after learning sitting meditation in a Zen temple in suburban Detroit. I decided if I was going to drop into my loneliness, I'd have to really go for it. Follow my breath over and over until all the loneliness came to a stop. The Zen teacher, who I was instructed to call Sensei, told me that the breath through to the end would take me beneath loneliness. I imagined this. <laughs> Everything would stop, like a second hand, right there at that moment, and I'd be free. It's not working. After a few days, lights were getting brighter, and I started wearing shades. If the weather was bad, as it often was in Detroit, I'd stay home and sit alone. The gray carpet in my rental unit would turn into a dark blur. As soon as that happened, I knew I was concentrated. My eyes stopped completely. Now it's early morning. The sun moves slowly across the icy windows of the van. If there's a new pattern in the snow, I try and draw it. When a bird goes by, I mark it down. I read Jung's collected works in the mornings, making pencil marks next to the dream segments to figure out how my dreams work, what they say, what they mean, everything means something. There's no radio, there's no music. My eyes skim the snow. In the far distance, the trees dip into a V, and in the center of the V, you can't make out the difference between the land and the white sky. Between the sky and the top of the lake, there's a strip of very still air. The wind blows higher up than that. The trees only move at their tops. The forest lifts to the west with a slight elevation, but everything is just flat. I am flat. There is a river I can walk to if the snow's not high. It's frozen over, but you can't hear it move. If I walk one, th but you can hear it move. If I walk one thin section of ice, I can get my boot through the ice and into the water. The people who live here must have had colorful stories to match this bleak landscape. I'm sure they saw colors I'm only beginning to see, like the way purple makes gray in the morning, purple makes gray in the morning clouds, or that most of the white lake has yellow in it in the afternoon. These are Tom Thompson's colors. The sky always has a gray bottom, and it only turns pink if the clouds are gray. Everything is delicate and rough at the same time. The trees are too cold to cut. The branches keep ripping my jacket. The water beneath the frozen ice stings when you touch it. This is a place where nobody could survive. There's an uplifting journal entry <laughs> from 
March of 1994. Um, I've been uh, rereading some of these old writings that I have, and when I uh, typed in the corner of my computer in the finder, that circle, I don't know what it's called. Spotlight. What's it called? Spotlight. Spotlight. And I typed in lonely. <laughs> but all the first things that came up were journal entries <laughs> from the early 90s. Um, it's so weird to use your own journal as a teaching. But actually, I think one of the things that I'm proud of is that when I was really young, I decided that uh, I would spend a lot of time alone. Uh, I didn't know at the time that I was terrified of people. I don't think I am anymore. Uh, but what it meant was when I felt really lonely, which was most of the time, uh, I really learned how to work with it. And I feel that uh, so much of the time when loneliness is arising for all of us, uh, the problem is not the loneliness. The problem is our relationship to the loneliness and how to work with the loneliness. That somehow longing is so powerful and it's so bad. But it's only so bad because of our idea of what loneliness is. I'm developing a theory for practice. And my theory has three parts. The first part of practice is to initiate an encounter. The second part of practice is to embrace what's being encountered. And the third part of practice is to let go of those. So let me describe what I mean. Uh, When an emotion arises that's difficult to be with, And loneliness is an emotion. And an emotion is 90% a mental state. It's 90% a thought. And when an emotion arises, you initiate contact with it. You don't pull back. You initiate contact. And then you embrace it. You become intimate, really close, so close like all that white I was just describing, like trackless snow. And then you let go of it. And if we can do this in our meditation practice, then we can start to do this with other people. We initiate contact, we embrace, and then we let go. And I'm not talking about over a five-year period. I'm talking moment to moment to moment. Maybe this is the secret of how you build community. You meet people in one moment. You initiate contact. You embrace them. And then you don't cling to it. When loneliness arises, you initiate contact. And then you let the wind of loneliness blow in. It's not personal. And then 
you let go. And if you do this over and over and over, your mind won't cling to the loneliness part. Your mind will know how to work with the letting go part. And then under the loneliness, there's a deeper knowing that you're not alone. Whoever said you're born alone and you die alone, I think was misguided. They were too focused on you. But this practice is not just about seeing through the nature of you. It's about feeling in your whole heart that you're always in company. Always. And then when the loneliness passes, you can improvise again. We're not alone. And the whole thrust of this practice is to realize that again and again and again and again and again. So I'd like to end with a koan for you to work with, aside from the koan of loneliness. Hogan, a Chinese Zen teacher, lived alone in a small temple in the country. One day, four traveling monks appeared. They asked him if they could build a warm fire on his property. While they were building the fire to warm themselves up, Hogan heard them outside arguing about subjectivity and objectivity. So he joined them and said, There is a big stone. Do you consider it to be inside your mind or outside your mind? One of the monks replied, From a Buddhist viewpoint, Everything is an objectification of mind, so I would say the stone is inside my mind. Hogan said, your head must feel very heavy if you are carrying around a big stone like that in your mind. (laughs) There are certain states of mind that are pretty hard to work with. Uh, Sleepiness is really hard to work with, as an example. But I think, actually, maybe the one that's showing up more and more for people that we have such a hard time working with is loneliness. It's like a big stone in your mind. It's not in your mind. And it's not out there either. And it's not between them. It's so important you work with that heaviness in your mind when it shows up. Because it's just another wind. 
It's not something you have to run away into non-existence with. And it's not something you have to fill up or, or shut down. And maybe if we get better at being in loneliness, then uh, its power will start to decrease. Because we're friends. And then the cultural implication is that we stop consuming these absurd ideas and statistics that there is a way that you're supposed to live alone or together at certain ages with or without children is nonsense. So I'll stop here. Part two next week. Let's take some time to have a discussion. Thank you.